Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello and welcome to the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed Index quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and is peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and through three episodes of this podcast, we will be taking you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject and interview experts in the field. The September 2016 issue is devoted to the microbiota. All YJBM issues are currently available on PubMed and are open access, which means that anyone can check out this and previous issues. Please check out the reviews, perspectives, original contributions, book reviews, and more. Our editors work to create an awesome issue on the microbiome, and we would love to have y'all check it out. In conjunction with every issue, we hold a dedicated colloquium where we invite an expert in the field pertaining to the field. With us today, we have Dr. Camille Kamupnitsky, a postdoctoral fellow from Andrew Goodman's lab. I am Ali Kuhlman, a third-year graduate student in the Department of Immunobiology, and I'll be one of your hosts today. And I am Erica Gorenberg, a second year in the Department of Neuroscience. Welcome, Dr. Konopnitsky. We're happy to, happy to have you with us today. Dr. Konopnitsky is a postdoctoral fellow here at Yale in the Department of Microbial Pathogenesis in the lab of Dr. Andrew Goodman. Andrew Goodman was the colloquium speaker associated with our issue on the microbiota, and Dr. Konopnitsky conducted much of the work he discussed. His talk was entitled, The Causes and Consequences of Microbiome Variation. Dr. Goodman's lab focuses on understanding the role of the microbiome in health, such as metabolism and during response to toxins and pathogens. His work also demonstrates the difficulties faced when working in the field of the microbiota, such as trying to simulate the environment that microbes of the microbiome need to grow. Dr. Goodman's talk was focused on how differences in the micro microbiota of individuals can make them differentially susceptible to infection. The lab looks at AMPs, or antimicrobial peptides, that are produced in the body to prevent microbial infection. These molecules are able to lyse open certain types of bacteria and kill them before they can replicate and infect the body. Dr. Konovnitsky, could you please summarize how you became interested in the microbiome and where your project started in the Goodman lab, and then how it evolved through the research process and the discoveries you've made? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, my background is quite outside the realm of microbiology and the microbiome. I started at uh, University of California, San Diego, UCSD, and I was studying uh, basically biochemistry, pharmacology, really interested in um, things like environmental contaminants and these types of exposures that can actually cause changes in the expression of your genes that are important for metabolizing drugs. So... Essentially, we were interested in things that cause a variability in drug response. So when uh, Dr. Goodman contacted me about looking at how the microbiome can be one of these factors or variables that influences how people respond to drugs, that caught my attention and brought me here. So I've been spending the last three years looking at how the microbiome impacts uh, or how it can influence drug metabolism. That's, uh, that's interesting in the context of what we were talking about last episode with Dr. Kriegel, where we were actually discussing the microbiome as its own type of organ system, and, and your work seems very much related to that. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It, it's almost like this metabolic organ. It has a lot of power, and it, it makes a lot of sense if you just think about it for a little bit about, you know, the microbiome is all these cells that live on and inside us, and uh, they contain genes. And they have so much more like metabolic potential than maybe even our own genome. 
So do you, do you think that's partly because we evolved to be dependent upon their metabolic regulation? Or like like did we have this metabolic control at some point and we gave it off to the microbiome or – um, I mean, it's kind of like a chicken or the egg type question. Um, that's really cool. Uh, I think that it's definitely a, like mutualistic uh, relationship. So um, what we do, what we eat, all these things influence the type of bacteria that we have. But also um, our bacteria are intricately linked to our health. So if we feed them and take care of them, they take care of us. Um, uh, so, So having worked at um, you know, kind of both the impact on our genome expression, but also on the impact of the microbiome gene expression. Do you think that there's an equal contribution of environmental factors, or um, if, if that makes sense? Like, do you think these big changes that we're working on are more because of the impact they have on our microbiome or because of our own gene expression? Yeah, so it's really complicated to uh, pick those um, apart. I mean, there's definitely exposures that impact us as a host. But we're starting to see that almost everything we do, from what we eat to where we live to the people we live with, um, kisses from our dogs, like all these mm-hmm. things can actually help shape which bacteria that we have. Um, so Erica kind of started off also talking about the evolution of your project. Is it something that's kind of taken a normal trajectory or have you kind of has it changed a lot and evolved a lot as you've gone further with it? Um, it's it's been pretty consistent. Like when I came to Yale, uh, my kind of goal was to bring this outsider knowledge to the microbiome field and to really explore this really, I mean, it really hadn't been studied very much, um, how the microbiome impacts drug metabolism. So my path has been pretty much that, but my very early, you know, months in the lab, I was getting a lot of experience doing, um, work with anaerobic micro uh basically like anaerobic microbiology so working in these like huge chambers with you know big gloves where there's essentially no oxygen um so we can actually study bacteria that you know live in the gut because you know it's more similar to the environment of the intestine mm-hmm. yeah um well can, can you tell us a little bit more about the project you are working on sure yeah um oh gosh this is like a very heavy question basically yeah summarize three three years of work (laughs) basically um we're interested in um this one particular drug warfarin or coumadin which is an anticoagulation drug and there are a couple of hints that suggested to us that the microbiome could be involved in um the way that it impacts uh, or the way people can respond to it. So I've been kind of trying to pick apart the mechanism involved. Like if you have a microbiome or if you don't have a microbiome, how does that affect the way you respond to warfarin? And the way that we can do that, I know you're probably thinking like, oh, in the absence of a microbiome, I'm talking about using germ-free mice as a model. Mm -hmm. So I went to the talk um, and I am in neuroscience, so I know very little about the microbiome. Um, and what I took away was the, the antimicrobial peptides. Can you can you tell us a little bit about them? Because obviously I don't know very much. And we didn't talk about it in the background, so I'm not sure how much our readers know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can... If you don't oh, know that much about it, it's okay, too. 
I mean, I can try, and then you can guys, <laughs> you guys can decide what to do with it. <laughs> um, is this more along the lines of the first question? Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. With respect to the talk, sorry. Um, it, the antimicrobial um, peptide resistance um, that Dr. Goodman was talking about. This is definitely an, an ancestral trait. Um, you know, our lab looked at these different um, prominent gut commensals that are that represent the three major groups of bacteria that are found in, the, in your gut. So these are the firmicutes, actinobacteria, the bacteroidetes, and we saw that they're resistant to multiple human and murine amps. So that was, I think, like polymi- polymixin B and um, another one. And we also did this by looking at the microbiomes from healthy individuals. So we had 12 healthy human donors, and you look at the three major groups of bacteria there, and you also see amp resistance. So, you know, these are bacteria that have stuck with us throughout the ages, um, and we think that, you know, their ability to persist through these, like, difficult times um, is definitely the reason why. Do you, so do you find these amp resistance also in, to be mainly expressed in the commensals, or are there pathogenic microbiome components that are also expressing these? Yes, that, that's a great point. So uh, in comparison to, like, proteobacteria, so, like, salmonella and, um, like, E. coli, uh, these are gram-negative bacteria that typically will not be able to um, uh, basically protect themselves from mm-hmm. amps. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so then do you think that maybe some sort of, you know, we've been thinking about some of the antibiotic resistance. Do you think that AMPs would be a good alternative, a way to maybe be able to target something that's pathogenic while not having the implications to the commensal microbiome? Well, it's it's a little bit tricky because, well, first of all, there's a lot of different AMPs. And while when, while it comes to these um, gram-negative bacteria, we don't really know the particular mechanism of action. But ne- basically, gram-negative bacteria are going to be attacked by AMPs, this particular type of, these particular type of AMPs that we we're talking about um, in, the, in, in the colloquium. But, you know, if you have gram-positive bacteria or something like that, you know, they're not going to be mm-hmm. affected. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess it's they're not really specific. They target the bacterial membrane. So it, yeah, it's not as much of a silver bullet as yeah. we would we would kind of want in in dealing with resistance. But I, but I'm sure there's some very creative ways that we could actually make it quite effective. Uh-huh. But I don't know if we're there yet. <laughs> and so you just mentioned this, but they're, the amps they're not specific to certain microbes, or or they are differentially affect. Different there types. are different amps. The ones that we were in particular, looking at in our lab, um, target the bacterial membrane. So do, do you know if resistance to these AMPs, is it something that kind of develops like antibiotic resistance? Can other cell type, other bacterial types um, pick these up or? Um, I, I'm not entirely sure on that one. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I would assume that maybe there's some form of like horizontal gene transfer yeah, in that yeah. and and th- that would be the way to acquire resistance but I I don't know very much about that um well so switching back then to maybe more more things related to your project with warfarin um I'm, I'm curious kind of what environmental factors impact the microbiota leading to one you know different metabolism and why would something like that evolve so 
I guess I should probably tell you like the the clues that led us to think that the microbiome can impact warfarin response. The first is that antibiotics impact um, warfarin uh, response. So patients that are on warfarin are actually advised by their doctors to um, you know be careful if they're taking antibiotics. And so it's an anticoagulant. Correct. How like how do people take it, or why would they be taking it? Yeah, good question. Um, warfarin is usually taken orally. Um, so it, you know, it gets, it gets, um, basically you would think that it has a lot of time to kind of interact, um, with the bacteria as it, um, goes through the GI tract and becomes systemic. But the effects that we're talking about of warfarin, the, the bacteria are not actually directly modifying the drug. This actually happens outside of the intestine, which is kind of cool. Um, there are a lot of um, re- there's a lot of research right now kind of looking at direct effects of bacteria, how they modify, uh, how they directly mm-hmm, modify mm-hmm. the drugs, either making them active or inactive. But that's not exactly what my research is looking at. I look at these more indirect effects. So when I was mentioning that antibiotics can impact the effect of warfarin, it's by competing with, for clearance with the host enzymes. So if there's drug metabolizing enzymes that clear warfarin, but then also clear antibiotics, they're competing. Oh, okay. So, so that's one thing. And, and we, so a lot of the you know, thinking out there right now is that there's these drug-drug interactions that occur. But it could just be because there's a perturbation to the microbiome by the antibiotics. The other is that bacteria actually make forms of vitamin K. And the reason that this is important is that warfarin basically um, affects the, the vitamin K cycle and leads to a decrease in the maturation of clotting factors. So vitamin K is really important. Another thing that doctors tell their patients is that, you know, they should be mindful of their vitamin K intake. So if they're eating spinach and stuff, that's fine. But just to know that that could, you know, actually impact their response. Um, Interestingly, patients actually uh, become a little bit scared of eating, like, these healthy vegetables and and tend to avoid eating it sometimes. (laughs) But... Anyway, uh, and then the, the, the last piece of evidence is that we've uh, seen that microbial metabolites, so products that are made by the bacteria, can actually cause um, changes in gene expression of these enzymes that, you know, could be metabolizing warfarin. So, you know, why would th- these bacteria trigger these changes in enzymes? Is it beneficial to them or? No, that's, that's a great question. Uh, and it's kind of similar to the idea of, you know, when we think about these drug metabolizing enzymes, they're not, you know, they weren't created to metabolize drugs. They're just structurally similar okay. to things that we eat or endogenous compounds that are present in our body, like hormones. It's the same thing with bacteria. They just look similar mm-hmm. um, to something that, you know, mm-hmm. that they're either going to metabolize so or we, eat. Yeah, evolutionarily, we didn't need the specificity to differentiate between the two. Yeah. That's cool. Um, okay, so you, you've done a great job describing your, your what you're asking. Kind of, could you walk us through the experiments that you're doing to actually begin to address some of these questions? Yeah, so it's really cool being able to work in um, Dr. Goodman's lab because we have access to this germ-free facility. And what that means is that we have mice that basically don't have any bacteria at all. They live in these big bubbles that we call isolators. And what's really cool about um, that is that it keeps the mice germ-free. We just have to make sure that everything we we bring in from their cages to their water to their food is completely germ-free. 
Yeah, um, can you can you belabor that point for our audience? Like what exactly <laughs> does that entail? Yeah, it's a it's a lot of work, and we have a wonderful um, team led by Natasha Berry uh, that help us carry out these experiments. And I mean, just in order to change one isolator uh, to make sure that the mice are happy and healthy, I mean, it takes you know at least a couple of days. So it's a long process. You have to plan experiments way out in advance. It's very different from you know the work that I was doing <laughs> in graduate school, um, but again, really powerful because we have these models that essentially have no bacteria. So what we can do is then you know either study um, how does the absence of bacteria you know cause X, or we can actually take these germ-free mice and then give them microbiomes from another mouse or like a human donor or even like a couple species of bacteria and then study how that um, community or how that microbiome um, affects the host. So that's essentially what I've been doing. I've been taking either germ-free mice or mice with a microbiome, we call these conventionally raised or conventionalized, which have been given a microbiome um, at weaning, and we treat them with warfarin and see how they respond. Can you tell us about some of the things you found? Or yeah, sure, yeah. Or um, if it's confidential. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not, it's not confidential. It's, it's actually really cool. So when we give the same dosage of warfarin to conventional animals, um, uh, when we give the same dosage of warfarin to germ-free animals that we give to conventional, they are completely hypersensitive to warfarin. Mm -hmm. And the way that we measure this is we look at how well their blood can clot. And it mm -hmm. clots... Um, basically way less than conventional animals. And then if we give them a microbiota weaning and treat them with the same dose, it rescues this effect. It brings them back down to normal, to the normal response. So do you think this work will have some tra uh, translational implications? I hope so. Uh, I mean, that's definitely the goal. And one of the really exciting things that um, Dr. Goodman uh, said when we were, you know, talking about me coming here, it was this idea that we can eventually, like, shape the microbiome. Um, so if you can't respond to a certain drug or whatnot, you can actually maybe use, you know, prebiotics or maybe just food to kind of massage out these ideal microbial conditions that will help patients respond to drugs that are, like, currently on the market, um, so, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, we're going to stop making drugs, but it could also take advantage of the fact that we wouldn't have to specifically make new drugs for certain, or, yeah, or certain could, situations. Yeah, tweak around PK. I, I was at a talk yesterday where, you know, he was the speaker was mentioning that we have all these drugs that were really effective in a tissue culture, but we couldn't get them to the optimal concentration in vivo. And so, you know, that could be something that could potentially take all these drugs that are efficacious, just not strong enough. Yeah, I, I think um, one of the things that you're talking about is these, you know, these systems that are, are not, these in vitro systems that are used to, to study drugs. And while they're really powerful, they fall a little bit short of really understanding, like, how complicated it is. Um, and uh, yeah, well, I mean, just thinking about that and you know, reductionist systems. You know, the your experiments rely so heavily on these germ-free colonies. How does it, and we've been talking about translation. How do you imagine studying the human microbiome? Yeah, um, we've been really lucky to be so close to the Yale New Haven Hospital. We have an ongoing clinical trial right now with some of the patients at the Coumadin Clinic. Um, where we're trying to, we're, we're basically studying their microbiomes and seeing if it correlates with 
um, the dosage that they're on or how long they're within this therapeutic window. Um, so that that's really exciting. Um, it's of course you know a correlation, um, an interesting one that we can study further in the lab, but it's a start. And um, I, I think that being able to really have this you know human component is is pretty pretty special. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you've done anything. Um, like this yet, or if this is maybe in the future, but have you found any specific types of microbes or, you know, families that are affecting it specifically more than others? With respect to warfare? Yes. Um, so we've done a couple of experiments, just very preliminary ones, where we've done m- monocolonization, so basically giving germ-free mice like a one species of bacteria and seeing um, if the response is different. Um, We didn't actually treat them with warfarin. We were just looking at differences in gene expression of some of the the drug metabolizing enzymes that we were interested in. And we didn't really see anything that was going to lead me in that direction. But again, this is just a handful of bacteria. Um, And those are exactly the types of experiments that I'd really like to do or actually, you know, treat with warfarin and um, see if these single species actually have an effect. Yeah, that's uh, one question we just thought would be fun to ask you is if you could have an ideal experiment where you weren't, you know, um, constrained, constrained yeah, by it, funding and funding or even just, you know, materials, what would it be? <laughs> um, well, with respect to my project, I think I've been really um, kind of excited and anxious to give complete communities from human donors to the germ-free mice and then treat with warfarin. Uh, because at this point, I've only been looking at how warfarin response is different in the absence or presence of microbes. And, you know, again, these these are mice and mice microbiomes. Um, I've been really, really wanting to give this, like, human component that you were talking about. So we have, like, a library of human donors that if we give, you know, these microbiomes to the mice and then treat them with warfarin, I would hope to see that we would see a variation in warfarin response, which is my project, is basically to to show that variation in microbiomes is what leads to variation in warfarin response, but I haven't gotten there yet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But in general, if we're not talking about, like, my project, I think that some of the most exciting and newest work out there right now is looking at um, the microbiome and how it impacts um, the brain and mental health. So anything in that realm would be really cool. Yeah, we, we've uh, talked about that some in our previous two issues. Yeah, it's, I mean, absolutely amazing and super powerful. I, I think it kind of almost, if, if we could figure it out, we could just be eating the right foods. <laughs> which again is probably like not necessarily what drug companies want to hear <laughs> but eat the right foods and then have a healthy brain I don't know it's a very optimistic point of view but I think you know food is the most powerful form of medicine so do you think that you know you started off looking at the host genetic variation do you think that different host genomes are going to impact the micro? microbiome that will then have the better warfarin response you know so so are you or or can you conceive of linking these microbial fluctuations to actual genetic differences in humans as well i, I mean we're, we're definitely 
I mean, we haven't been looking at that, and especially since the the mouse model that we work with, you know, it kind of takes advantage of the fact that they're gen- they're genetically identical. Mm-hmm. Um, we control for foods, so the only thing that's different between them would be their microbiomes. Um, but I think that our genetics definitely play a role um, in even shaping mm-hmm. the type of bacteria that we have. That's just far less understood. Yeah, and much more difficult to tell. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so your lab has developed a variety of different culturing techniques uh, to attempt to mimic the microenvironment of particular bug niches to enable their growth. Um, can you talk to us about some of these technologies? Um, so, I, I mean, I think you're talking about, you know, taking, well, I think taking advantage of the culture dependent versus independent. Um, I mm-hmm. think one of the, the cool things about the work that we do is that we don't actually need to culture a lot of the bacteria in order to understand which ones are there. Um, because when you do culture dependent techniques, you know, you can only see what you can grow. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that that's pretty exciting that we can do that in our lab. Um, you know, doing 16S analysis and really being able to see which bacteria are there. Um, and then, of course, we have, as I was mentioning earlier, it's not necessarily a culturing technique, but we have the germ-free mice, which we can give them microbiomes and then see how it affects the host. So, you know, the intestinal integrity, things like that. Um, so we've been talking a little bit about technologies. And so do you en- envision using bioengineering technologies that attempt uh, growing human intestines in the lab will be something that you can use in the future to study the microbiome? Well, I think, um, yeah, that would be really exciting and kind of, you know, we were talking about it earlier that, you know, when you have these simplified systems where you can't really um, understand the whole picture because you're outside of the host, you know, you're studying the bacteria, you're studying the cells in culture, um, but it would be really cool if we could have these, you know, co-culturing um, methods that, like you said, mimic the intestinal environment. So basically you have your cells and your live microbes and you can study like that interface. And I think that that's going to be really important. I mean, I, I'm excited to see um, how, you know, the presence of microbial metabolites could like impact, you know, gene expression within the intestine. Um, but there's some really cool work, I think, going on at Harvard by Donald um, Ingber and uh, James Collins, where they've actually developed this gut on a chip where they can actually do exactly just that, where they have the, they've basically can have like an intestinal, um, they m- mimic the intestinal microenvironment and then can uh, flow, you know, microbial, like live microbes over and kind of study the, the interactions and the interface. It's really cool. That's fascinating. Start a collaboration with them. I was like, um, (laughs) I would like that, please. (laughs) And I guess they've also developed things besides the besides the gut. They have, I think, lung. They have a couple of different organs. Organ on a chip. Do you ever do you ever look at other organs in your work, or do you mainly focus? Because you know the drug metabolism can happen systemically too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that. I have just been primarily focusing on liver because it's the, the you know one of the major mm-hmm. metabolic organs. Mm-hmm. Um, initially, I had been looking at small intestine and colon, um, but I haven't so far. Uh, but it could also be very very interesting. Um, but some of the cool stuff that I've seen by just looking at the the liver is that we can actually take these livers and prepare essentially like purified ER. 
um, membrane fractions, which contain the enzymes that I'm interested in, and then give them warfarin and kind of do the same, basically observe the enzymatic reaction that we would see in the mice, but in a test tube. Um, so that's actually been a really cool, powerful tool to study drug metabolism um, kind of outside of the mouse. But <laughs> Is that something you brought with you from your pharmacology background? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's been, it's, that's pretty much what we've been spending like the last six months doing. Um, it's kind of a cool technique that I hope that we can use um, more because again, mice, you know, they're hard to come by and there's a lot of work that goes into carrying out those experiments, but... Well, um, so you've talked a lot about warfarin. Do you know of any other drugs that have interesting metabolic interactions? Yeah, so I'm, I think the the biggest take-home message from from all, all the – sorry, let, let me start again. Basically, there are so many drugs out there right now that we don't even – know that the microbiome plays a role. Um, but one of, one of the drugs which many people take is Tylenol, and it's because it competes for clearance with a common microbial metabolite. So, I mean, the, and that, like I said, is a common drug, and I, I just believe that we're going to start seeing more and more and more examples of that. Um, Can you go into that a little bit? I, I'm definitely a Tylenol popper, so I'm, I'm intrigued. <laughs> yeah, well, basically, it looks similar to a, a microbial metabolite. So when the enzyme that metabolizes it encounters it, it it's like, well, which one do I have the higher affinity for? You know, basically, um, it forces uh, Tylenol to be metabolized a, a different way or less efficiently um, just because that particular microbial metabolite is there. That's fascinating. Do these, feed, do these feedback on the microbiome as well? So if I take a lot of Tylenol and there's competition for these bacterial enzymes and whatnot, is my mi microbiome changing to resemble that? Or I mean, I, I don't exactly know, but I would assume that, you know, if bacteria are encountering drugs they look like things and 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 they're either you know so again this is sorry this is host metabolism that's being impacted okay, okay. but um from the standpoint of direct modification like if you're taking a drug and bacteria modify it it's because it probably looks like something that they can use mm -hmm. um which could you know benefit or not benefit the the microbial community mm -hmm. um so we've been talking a lot about about the bacterial microbial community. Do you think the virome is also playing a role? I, absolutely, um, but we just know so much less about it. Um, I, I don't know, I can't really say very much uh, since it's not my, um, you know, expertise, but I think that it's definitely uh, a, a key player. Same thing with, um, with fungi, you know, there's this, it's not just bacteria, mm -hmm. and it's you know, crosstalk between all of those guys. Yeah. Um, is there any evidence that the kind of more Western microbiome has a different role in these metabolites than the more traditional microbiome that we grew up evolved with? So in general, so you're talking about like the westernized diet. Yeah, yeah. And just kind of, you know, we've, we've focused a lot in previous issues on the way that, you know, changes in lifestyle have impacted our microbiome. Do you think these are having... Um, different consequences? I think it could. Um, de de because food is, food is, food is food for us, but, you know, our bacteria are helping us break it down, and, and we wouldn't be able to eat a lot of things without their help. So 
they are definitely shaped by the types of things that we eat. Um, that being said, just because, you know, you know, you and your family eat the same same food still doesn't mean that you guys are going to have the exactly the same sort of microbiome. Um, but food is food, diet, um, these are definitely things that can shape the type of bacteria that you have. Mm-hmm. Well, so um, this is more of an immunology question, but, you know, we've been thinking a lot about the way that um, this theory that the adaptive immune system evolved in part to control the microbiota. Do you think that's accurate? Um I think it's probably complicated, <laughs> um, but, you know, at least my understanding is that adaptive immunity, it's basically memory against the initial response to a specific pathogen, right? So you have to be exposed to this one pathogen and it provokes a response, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. But um, I don't think it's quite as easy to do that with the members of the microbiome, mostly because a lot of the times these uh, members have the ability to cause problems, but they're not necessarily causing problems. So these are like pathobionts. They're resonant microbes with a pathogenic potential. So given the right conditions, um, then they could have a detrimental effect. But, you know, those sort of imbalances and, you know, the, the environment has to be right. So like C. diff can bloom given the right mm-hmm. conditions mm-hmm. after like antibiotic treatment. Um, so I don't think it's quite as easy, especially since those bacteria are there with us all the time. If, if it was an adaptive immunity thing, I don't think that they'd be able to persist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that you do a lot of work in kind of science diplomats. If there was something that you could say to the general population about the microbiome, like what are the misconceptions? I'd love to hear kind of your take on that. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think it, it coming from from like the general population perspective, one of the most common misconceptions is that bacteria are bad and then we need to get rid of them. Uh, we have become a little obsessed with cleanliness from you know using antibacterial um, hand soaps and these agents and you know not letting our kids like play in the dirt and stuff like that. So I think that that is one of the most common misconceptions about the microbiome and and it's a little bit detrimental because our bacteria are so important for our health. So I think that it really, your, your use of soaps and stuff like that and not rolling around the dirt, dirt or like kissing your dog, you know, all these things are helping, <laughs> you know, grow and, and like keep you, grow your microbiome and keep you healthy. <laughs> and then it what, was, oh, what about as a scientist coming in from, you know, a different field, yes. what was, what was your, what were your misconceptions or what are common misconceptions? So I don't know if I would really call it a misconception, um, but I think one of the biggest challenges is really, or that scientists in the microbiome field face is really overcoming this idea of, you know, correlation. Um, Al, there's a lot of stuff in the news that you're saying that, you know, drinking wine changes your microbiome or exercise <laughs> changes the microbiome. And yeah, those changes do happen, but what do they mean? So I think as a scientist, I'm very aware of trying to um, do really mindful mechanistic research where we're trying to identify, you know, 
causes and that this causes that, not that this is simply an interesting observation that results from, you know, drinking a lot of wine or exercising. <laughs> well, and so then on the other end, what, you know, because I'm an immunologist who knows nothing about pharmacology, what do you think our misconceptions of that field is and how has that made you more apt at studying these questions? So, well, sorry, one more time. Yeah. Okay, yeah, let me, <laughs> I, I guess I was just um, trying to ask how does, you know, what are our misconceptions about pharmacology? Or do you think that... Oh, I see. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that, well, at least in the, microbi- in the microbiome field, one of the things that I have to catch, I catch myself doing all the time is, you know, saying, oh, no, the host, you know, like the people that I work with, they are very heavily focused on the micro, on microbiology. So when I came in, you know, guns blazing, talking about all this stuff, they uh, kept on, you know, thinking that I was talking about bacterial enzymes. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. No, I, I meant, I meant like the host response. So I had to be very mindful and clarify that all the time, um, which sounds silly, but uh, I'm trying to think. No, I think else. I even had that misconception <laughs> earlier in our conversation. <laughs> yeah, and actually, one one thing that I had to be mindful of coming in was that in my graduate lab, when we worked with we worked with um, genetically uh, um, like transgenic and genetically modified um, animal models, so they carried, you know, human genes or. Um, uh, basically, if they carried human genes in the absence of the mouse gene, they would be considered humanized. Mm-hmm. And humanized in the microbiome world means that they've been given a like microbiome or a human microbiome. So I had to be very careful about you know terminology that I you know you think is so specific to your field, but it actually can mean different yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. In the immuno immunology field, humanized means they've been given a human immune system. Yep. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just <laughs> yeah. Yeah adopted <laughs> so so you know you've been talking about metabolic interactions we've talked about you know kind of the adaptive immune system do you think there are other fields that this is going to be really big in kind of micro microbiome and you know you mentioned uh, the brain as well but I think that it's going to be very hard to find something that it's not linked to but really again, trying to identify if it's just an observation or something real is going to be the tricky part. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, once we do that, it could be really, really powerful and, I mean, even, you know, make its way to doctors when we're dealing with, you know, certain disease states and, and maybe, you know, asking for, if we're not just looking at someone's genetics, we'll be looking at their microbiome to help diagnose them. Yeah. And then treat them. And then treat them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to specifically talk about? Um, so in terms of some of the common misconceptions from the medical perspective, we have an MD in the lab. And uh, when I ch- chat with him, he says one of the most common things uh, that he sees at his work is that doctors typically uh, – I don't think they really understand that probiotics can't really easily influence the microbiome. Um, the literature really just doesn't support this. So, you know, the idea of probiotics. So these are live bacteria that you're taking and trying to force to live in this, like, cramped space where there's already, like, trillions of bacteria. It's, it's not really realistic. Is that true after antibiotic use as well? After antibiotic use, 
it's probably going to be less of a struggle to find real estate, but still it's a little bit unrealistic to think that bacteria um, given that way, if they can even make it through the acidic mm-hmm. conditions of your stomach, are going to be able to find, you know, prime real estate to, you know, live within mm-hmm. the gut. So it's not really realistic. Um, the other is that this idea that bacteria are good or bad, and I think we touched on this earlier, um, where it's it's not really, you know, black and white, it's more gray. Uh, so I don't think doctors really look at bacteria from this, like, ecological standpoint um, where the context and conditions really matter. So then how how do you envision if if the probiotics isn't a good way of delivering these things, if, if your project does come into um, – a conclusion that we can modulate it, how would we have to modulate it? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, uh, so, you know, I think a lot of people have heard of probiotics, but there's also um, what we call prebiotics, which are um, basically chemicals that uh, are found in certain foods, or we can even make drugs that look like these certain um, food for bacteria. Uh, It basically can help bring out... um, it basically can help uh, act as fertilizer for, you know, beneficial bacteria. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if we can identify bacteria that we, you know, are would So help. as opposed to giving bacteria, giving exactly giving growth factors for them. So yeah, cult- yeah, culturing them within ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, you you take these these you know a drug that might look like this prebiotic compound, or you eat foods that are rich in prebiotic compounds, and then hopefully, uh, if it you know, tar- if it's food for the right type of bacteria, which, you know, we have probably yet to identify for a lot of different conditions, like that could be a way. Marketing-wise, that's a lot more appealing to the general public. Absolutely. Than, yeah, than a fecal transplant is. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> oh, yeah, we love, yeah, we love talking about fecal, fecal transplants. Yeah, I think um, fecal transplants right now, you know, they're I think they're all the rage in the news. People see how effective they are for um, C. diff treatments. Um, We definitely are not at the point where it can be safely used for anything else. Um, But I think that's actually a really – I'm glad you brought it up because it's actually a common misconception too. It's that it's the end-all, be-all, you know, cure to everything. That's what – yeah, Martin Kriegel brought that up in our last episode, and I was kind of, you know – I, I definitely had that misconception of they're great. It's awesome. We're going to cure obesity by, you know, taking a skinny, you know, it's, it's everybody would love that, yeah. that treatment. But, uh, you know, I think that, that you bring up a great point in, um, in identifying this. Yeah, I think that that might definitely be something in the future that FMTs could be used for. But there's, I mean, and I'm sure there's ongoing research trying to figure out how we can use FMTs to treat other things. But right now, it's only currently um, approved and um, been shown to be effective for receipt of treatments. Oh, it's one of those things that's just like so startling when you I know. hear about it. You just kind of latch onto it yeah. and want to find everything. I know. <laughs> the power of poop. <laughs> And we have fun catchphrases like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. They're all littered all over the internet and in magazines. Oh, yeah. No, it's everywhere. <laughs> yeah. You can see it in Whole Foods now. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Hopefully it has its own section. Um, is there any other work from the lab that you'd like to talk about or or have we, you know, you talked about your project and some of the AMPs. 
Um, are they focusing on anything else? Yeah, so the, the postdoc that was working on, on that project with LPXF and AMPS um, has uh, since moved on to uh, really great things. He was working at Novartis for a little while. Um, and let's see, other people in the lab. Uh, there's some really cool work looking at um, the way that bacteria, or bacteria basically persist in the gut um, from a kind of like bacterial warfare standpoint. Um, basically how they defend and stake their claim um, within such a, you know, again. Game theory, yes. Yeah, 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 within within the gut, which is very competitive and, and there's not a lot of space. So the way that they can actually persist in the gut. So do you think that the human immune system is a bigger kind of controlling factor? Or is it actually the other bacteria that are the biggest pressure to surviving within that context? You mean what, what makes it so competitive? Is it the other bacteria? Or oh, I see. The, oh, I see. Yeah, oh, I, yeah. sorry. Yeah, I'm talking about um, purely from bact- bacteria competing with others. Ecological. So how do they recognize, okay. um, yeah. you know, a friend or a foe or uh, and and basically like how do they establish these like little like niche environments mm-hmm. and uh, get food and you know basically live within the gut, mm-hmm. which is uh, tight packed and you know very competitive Mm -hmm. um and then so the the md in the lab uh is also working on a very similar um drug metabolism project where he's looking at uh, a drug that's used uh, to treat ibd and how microbes are important for that Mm -hmm. and again variability in like host responses Mm -hmm. is linked to to microbial variation um yeah, so so there's there's you know this very interesting component of our lab where we're looking at um, bacterial bacterial interactions and and how they how they interact with each other, and then we have like the host microbe mm-hmm. interactions. So those are kind of like the two big um, divisions in our lab. But you're doing so much, and this is just one lab study. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's it's really cool. It's a really fun place. I can't even fathom all of this. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Of course. It's my pleasure. It was fun. I had so much fun talking with you. Yeah. Uh, So that wraps up another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. Thanks for tuning in and join us soon for our first podcast in our series on epigenetics in anticipation of our December 2016 issue on the topic. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to Philip Kearney and the rest of the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Thank you to our editors-in-chief, Danielle Gerhardt, Tomoaki Sasaki, and Yasmin Zakinyaz, and to the rest of the YJBM staff. We are produced and written by Helen Balinson, Erica Gorenberg, and Allie Kuhlman. Special thank you to our guests for joining us today. For more information on YJBM and our podcast, please visit medicine.yale.edu slash YJBM. Be sure to check out our journal by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at PubMed.com. If you would like to contact us, email us at yjbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes and rate us. As always, feel free to tell us your thoughts by leaving comments. You can also listen to us and share our podcast on SoundCloud. See you next month for the next installment of the YJBM podcast.